This evening's reading is found on page 966 in the Church Bibles. It comes from St. Paul's second letter to the Church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 2. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves again to you, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favourable time I listened to you, and a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Well, good evening. Well, it is a real joy to be able to add my welcome to Esther's. If you don't know me, I'm Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. Um, And I'm hoping that the novelty of the new building um, will begin to wear off and we'll be able to settle our hearts and minds on God's Word. In one sense, this Sunday, everything's changed. I mean, it's very different, isn't it, to meeting on Zoom or or in Clooney the last couple of weeks. In one sense, the centre hasn't changed at all as we gather together to hear God's voice. So let me pray for his help um, for us all to, to concentrate and respond. Our Father, we do thank you, as Robin was saying, for this brilliant place to meet. It's dry, it's warm, it's easy to hear. We thank you for that. But we pray now that you would still our hearts and minds to hear your voice in your word. Help me to be clear and faithful. Help us all to respond, not by hardening our hearts, but by softening them to your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, you'll see on the back of the service sheet an outline. Um, And I thought, given we are now back in the building, 
Um, and we've been a bit all over the place uh, in terms of location the last couple of weeks. Uh, I thought it might be helpful to have a recap of 2 Corinthians so far. Uh, if you're new, hopefully that will catch you up. If you're old, been around, um, hopefully it will uh, consolidate what we've been seeing. So on these Sunday nights, we've been seeing that Paul has written this letter. He's a spokesman for Jesus, an apostle. He's written this letter to the church in Corinth, telling them what authentic ministry looks like and feels like. It's all about authentic ministry. What does the real deal look like and feel like? Now, in a moment, I'll recap what we've seen so far. Just before we do, two quick questions. What do we mean by Christian ministry, authentic Christian ministry? What do we mean by that? Well, fundamentally, we mean speaking about Jesus. That's the Bible's consistent message, that the heart of Christian ministry is proclaiming Jesus Christ. Jay's definition, which I think was really helpful from 2 Corinthians, was, was this. Authentic Christian ministry is simple, Bible-explaining, Jesus-proclaiming ministry. That's what it is. Who is involved in Christian ministry? That's the second question as an introduction. Well, we keep mentioning not just the people up front, not just the full-time church workers like me. Uh, it's not only us who need to know what authentic ministry looks like. It, it's actually something every uh, Christian is engaged with. It, we're engaged with it in what we listen to and support. We're engaged with it in terms of the um, ministry that we partner with and pray for. And we engage in it ourselves as we speak about Jesus to those around us. So all of us need our understanding and our expectations calibrated as to what the real deal looks like and feels like. In fact, even if you're not a Christian here tonight, and you're very, very welcome, I'm glad you're here, even you, I hope, will benefit from from hearing what the Bible says the real deal should look like, because there are a lot of fakes out there. And I think one of the surprises, if you are new to 2 Corinthians, is that the real deal looks rubbish, feels often rubbish, feels really weak. We've seen uh, Paul, the apostle, uh, an authentic Christian minister who just would never make it onto the Times Rich List or um, Time Magazine's kind of most influential people of the century. There would never have been a a kind of supplement on him with a a, a review piece in the Corinthian Guardian's kind of up-and-coming public speakers. He just wasn't impressive. The only public recognition um, Paul would sometimes get is his face on a wanted poster, disturber of the peace. Sometimes talking about Jesus caused riots. And so with Paul looking unpopular, weak, unimpressive, the Corinthian church, as we've seen, have been wobbling in their partnership with him. Some were still on board, but some were being taken in by a smoother, more sophisticated, outwardly more impressive ministry. There were these super apostles. They'd managed to airbrush out the awkward, offensive bits of the gospel and fill those gaps with great smiles, positive messages, amazing oratory. It just felt great to be in church when they were speaking. And so this letter sets out what the real deal looks like. Just look at 5 verse 12 in our passage. In lots of ways, a key verse for this section of the letter where Paul points out he's not, he's not defending himself and his reputation. He just wants them to understand what the real deal is. Verse 12, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. He wants them to be able to resist what the super apostles are offering because they know the real deal. Now, we're not going to go into great detail in this recap, but I have just put in that box 
a short phrase to, to capture what I was struck by as we went through each of the passages so far. Just a short phrase for each one. Um, so what have we seen so far about authentic ministry? Well, chapter one, it is suffering-shaped. Authentic Christian ministry is suffering-shaped. That is to say, you're not disqualified from doing ministry if you've suffered. Quite the opposite, it can equip you for Christian ministry. And that, I know, has been a great encouragement to many of us who feel our weakness. Secondly, Christian ministry is straight speaking. That was the end of chapter one. Uh, There's no spin, no double talk, no saying yes when we mean no. The word of a Christian, the word of a Christian minister really matters because God's word is always reliable. He keeps his word. So we're to be straight speaking. Thirdly, relationship restoring. Uh, Paul's had some painful interactions with the Corinthians because he's willing to call out sin if it's there, call them to turn and live God's way. But his aim, he says, was always relationship restoration, properly bringing people back together. I think that's why the fourth uh, phrase is so surprising and, and, and striking. Christian ministry is all about reconciliation. We heard that in our reading. We'll think about that more tonight. All about reconciliation, but actually it's really polarizing when it happens. It, it's response polarizing. That is, it gets mixed reactions from the world around us. Um, as we offer a chance to be reconciled with God and with others, some people love that and come to worship Jesus. Other people hate it. Paul did it with um, smells, with the smell of life to some, the smell of death to others. Response polarizing. Now that makes it pretty hard to keep going. It's easy to lose heart. And so the next set of um, kind of uh, characteristics of Christian ministry show us how amazing it actually is. It, it may smell bad to some people, but it's amazing. So spirit-powered. Um, don't lose heart, says Paul. We don't lose heart in Christian ministry. It is spirit-powered. That is, God the Holy Spirit is powerfully changing people through this Jesus-speaking ministry. Radical revolution and reform happens in people's lives. We live in a world that, that cries out, doesn't it, for justice, for integrity, for leaders that we could trust, to put other people first, for love that's genuine. Well, authentic Christian ministry contains the power to turn a human heart inside out. That is to turn a heart from self-focus, self-serving, self-promotion, which is our natural hearts, and turn it out to Christ-like, other person-centered love. It's heart-transforming, it's spirit-powered, It's also glory-drenched. Glory-drenched because it's Jesus proclaiming. Glory is is God's perfection on show. And so as Jesus is proclaimed, God's glory, all of his goodness is put on display. Just have a look in your Bibles to chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. This is one of the verses we would have got that definition of Christian ministry from. Chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. As Jesus is proclaimed, God's glory is seen and then is actually reflected by the people um, who are coming to know God through Christ. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary, glorious ministry. 
Although the next verse says, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay. The gospel may be amazing, the ministry may be glorious and powerful, but we are properly weak and shown to be weak. Christian ministry, the real deal, is weak feeling, weak looking. Uh, We as a family have had one of those weeks where it feels like everything goes wrong. And we have just felt really weak. There have been moments where we think, I'm not sure we can cope with another difficult thing happening. The point is, we can't cope. We're weak. Jars of clay. God makes it very clear that the power does not lie with us. It lies with him. And that brings us to our final um, phrase. This was last week uh, with Adam, eternally motivated. Uh, If you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been uh, engaged in and partnering with Christian ministry, I I hope as you hear those phrases, I hope you recognize that. It's amazing and it's really hard. It's powerful. People's lives actually change. My life actually changes as Jesus is proclaimed and it really hurts. It's costly. Hard to keep going. Easy to lose hearts. Easy to to drop our courage. And so that's why we need motivation. Last week we had the motivation of eternity. We look forward to a new body, to a new home with Jesus, to this final verdict on our lives. Last week was all about looking forward. And tonight we're going to get some more motivations. And you'll see on the outline, we've done the intro now, you'll see on the outline there's three points, but really the middle point, point two, is the the big one. And we're going to look at the aim of gospel ministry, the motivation that keeps Paul going. Um, what is it that gets Paul out of bed in the morning uh, to keep going, to pick himself up, or out of his uh, cell when there might not be a bed to go again? What is it that keeps him going? Well, that's what tonight's going to help us with. And then right at the end, we'll just see the core message of um, Christian ministry. So let's get into it. Let's get into the aim first, just briefly. The aim of authentic Christian ministry. What do we aim to do? Well, it's there in uh, chapter 5, um, verse 11. Chapter 5, um, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. If you ask Paul, what, what's your aim? You, you're traveling all over the Mediterranean. You, you, you kind of uh, stick in some towns for ages. You hire the local public hall and you put on loads of events and things. What is your aim, Paul? My aim is to persuade others. Now, we'll think about the fear of the Lord in a moment when we come on to motivation. But that kind of brief summary, we persuade others, gets unpacked later in the passage. So just flick your eyes on to chapter 5, verse 18. We're on page 966 if you close your church Bible, but 518, um, this is where we hear what God's doing and then therefore what that leads Paul to do. So all this is from God, verse 18, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. That's why we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God Paul goes round appealing to people, up, up, um, imploring people, trying to persuade them, reasoning with them to be reconciled with God. That's his aim. Knowing the fear of God, 
we persuade others. So, Paul, what would you do with a new building in Morningside? What? Try and persuade people to follow Jesus, to get right with God. What would you do in each of the events in that new building in Morningside? Well, I'd take every opportunity to persuade people to get right with God. That's his aim. And he wants it to be Corinth's aim, the, the church there, and he wants it to be our aim. That's why we got the letter. That's why the Spirit wrote this for us. So let's just pause and think about this idea of trying to persuade people to become Christians, to find forgiveness in Jesus. I've been reflecting on this, and I think we don't find this very easy, <laughs> to say the least. It's not comfortable, is it? I think it's even more uncomfortable than what we normally say. We normally say, well, we're supposed to speak about Jesus, supposed to tell the gospel. This is a bit stronger than that, isn't it? It's, we're trying to actually persuade people. We're not trying to just proclaim something. We're trying to persuade people, convince them, show them why this makes sense, show them why it's good. So easy, isn't it, to just think, well, I'd rather just keep ourselves to ourselves. I mean, if people want to know how to get right with God, they can always come along to church, and we'll obviously say it up here. But this idea of persuading people, it can feel so uncomfortable, can't it, to us? It doesn't feel very polite. Possibly not even very Christian. Definitely not very British. I think it's one of the strange oddities of our culture in the UK at the moment. They were given the impression that, that loving someone and trying to persuade them to change their mind about something important are mutually incompatible. Like, like if I really love you, yeah, I can, I can persuade you about a good TV show or a gig you should go and see or, or something amazing that I'm into, as long as it's trivial. But if it's something serious, something personal, something spiritual, well, you can't possibly go there. That, that wouldn't be loving. Strange that, isn't it? that we're starting to believe it would be, it would be kind and loving to, to leave someone in their own viewpoint, even if it doesn't fit reality and it's not good for them. I think one of the reasons that's happening is we're, we're losing uh, what was a Judeo-Christian value, which was the ability to disagree and still love someone, to respect someone, even if you disagree. Say, do you know what? I'm going to try and persuade you that that's wrong, but if you don't agree, that's okay, I respect you. I still love you. We're not going to fall out. And with all that background, I think we can sometimes bottle it. We can sometimes have a slightly take-or-leave-it thing. A kind of, I, you see, I don't think Paul just kind of stated Bible truths in the kind of, oh, there it is, I'll just summarize it. No, he tried to persuade people. He tried to show them, this is wonderful. This is something you need. This is something I love. This is something I needed. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. He thought to himself, which bit of the Bible would be most helpful for this person? He thought to himself, how, we saw this in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 years ago in this building, in the old style, um, in that motto series, we saw how he kind of bends over backwards culturally to get alongside people, to, to remove any possible offense or hurdle that would get in the way of them hearing and understanding how great Jesus is. Paul thinks imaginatively, creatively. He tries to get into different places and he tries to connect with different kinds of people. 
And then he gets the Bible open, gently, lovingly, and persuasively, to say, do you see how good Jesus is? Do you see how much we need him? Now, of course, quick caveat, there are ways to try and persuade people that are not Christian. Can't bully people or kind of coerce people into God's kingdom. Of course we can't. More subtly, and the one that 2 Corinthians has been warning us about, we can't, we can't flatter people or manipulate them emotionally or, or distort the truth of God's gospel to, to kind of lower the bar for people to step over more easily. We can't airbrush the challenging bits just to get results. 2 Corinthians has been warning about that to us. But to be honest, given the culture we're in, I don't think our danger is being too pushy as Christians. I think our danger is stopping short of trying to persuade. That can be for theological, misguided theological reasons, kind of, well, it's up to God who gets saved, so kind of, it's not really, it's not really about us persuading. Paul's pretty clear on God's sovereignty. And yet, as, as Bible writers go, he's, he's pretty strong on that. But he still seeks to persuade. It could just be personal kind of history for us. Uh, some of us will have tried sometimes to, to persuade someone to, to say, this is amazing. Why don't you come and find out about Jesus? And we'll have had setbacks and disappointments. We might have smelt like death to someone. They didn't like it. And so we can lose our enthusiasm, lose our nerve for speaking about Jesus. Or it can just be social reasons, can't it? I don't want to be the awkward one at the school gate. That's personal testimony. I really don't want to be the awkward one. <laughs> We don't want to stand out from the prevailing winds. Sometimes it's just priorities in life. We want to keep our head down at work or in the neighborhood because we don't want to rock the boat. Whatever the reason, there were pressures not to speak about Jesus in the first century, just like there are now. It's never actually been universally popular, not even widely popular, to go around saying, you need Jesus. He's wonderful and he's necessary. It wasn't popular for Paul to do that back here. It's not popular for our mission partners around the world tonight. And it's not popular for us. All of which means we need a great big dose of motivation. I guess all of us can resonate with, oh, do we have to? We need motivation. We need to know, why did Paul keep going? What kept him going? Well, Point two, what motivates Christians to do this? Uh, I think there are four big ones in here, and we'll tackle them quite quickly. I promise we won't be here all night, but um, four big ones. And I think the fact there are four big ones shows us we need a lot of help in this. I mean, strong motivation can make people do all sorts of extraordinary things with their lives, can't we? Can't they? Uh, we've, we've had a weekend. Um, I'm sorry if you don't like sport, because there's been a lot of it this weekend. Um, you're probably bored of your friends or family talking about it or, or in the illustrations. Um, but so many elite athletes have been competing, uh, whether um, rugby, um, cricket, tennis, football, loads of stuff this weekend. And all of those people have utterly reshaped their lives because of a goal they had in view. They wanted to, to get the winner's medal. They wanted to be victorious in the final. Years and years of intense, painful training and discipline, all for that prize, which of course only happens to one team. One of the captains said, sport is cruel. She lost. 
But it's not just sporting victories that kind of people lead people to reshape their lives, is it? And when I used to work in uh, a church in the, the city of London, you'd see it in the, in the banks and law firms that there were young professionals just si- signing up to the most horrendous work-life patterns, all because they'd get enough money with enough bonuses to retire in their 40s. And it's not just sport or work. I mean, lots of people put huge time and energy and money into getting the appearance they want or the travel they want, or the fame they want, or the power politically they want, or the academic success they want. Now, Paul had the brain and the background, the connections, to pursue all sorts of things in life. What drove him to spend his time speaking about Jesus? Four things. Firstly, knowing the fear of God. Knowing the fear of God. That was there, wasn't it, in 5 verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. I think it's helpful to see what's just happened in verse 10. He's just been thinking about the judgment seat of Christ. That's where we ended last week. Um, and, and knowing that final day, that, that day of judgment, which notice in verse 10 is coming for everyone, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Last week, we thought of the encouragement that Jesus sees everything. And actually, if we're serving him, often in costly, unseen ways, that's a wonderful thing. He sees every little effort we make uh, to serve him, to speak of him. But actually, I think Paul is also thinking of people who don't yet know Jesus. Verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what's due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. As Paul travels around the Mediterranean, he knows that every single human being that he sees will one day meet Jesus Christ and be accountable to him. He walks past the sailors on the dock. They're going to meet Jesus. The flashy speakers in the forum, they're going to meet Jesus. The priests in the temple of Artemis are going to meet Jesus. The sellers in the marketplace that he knows, they're all going to meet Jesus. The people who come and buy the tents he's repairing are going to meet Jesus. And because he fears God, they don't, not at all, but because he does, and he knows what God is like, and he knows what it's going to be like for them to meet him. In all his purity, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his his burning righteousness, because he knows that, he makes every effort to persuade people. He knows you don't want to be found unforgiven before the judge of all the earth, the judge who can't be bought or bribed or bent, the judge with all eternity in his hands. He knows the world scoffs at that idea of Judgment Day, just like Paul used to scoff at the idea of Jesus Christ. But then when Paul met Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, he knew he had to change his perspective. And now, knowing the fear of God... He persuades others. That's our first motivation, knowing the fear of God, that that day is coming. Sometimes we can feel like, oh, fear is not a good Christian motivation. Uh, I think that's right if we're thinking about the, I don't know where I stand with God, kind of the fear that I'll be judged. No, not at all. We have a great high priest, as we're hearing in Hebrews. Actually, fear as in the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that is healthy. Realizing who we're dealing with, who everyone each one 
we'll be dealing with. Well, that's a healthy motivation. Secondly, though, it's not just fear of God. It's being controlled by the love of Christ. Controlled by the love of Christ. Um, Let's have a look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I've been really struck by this. He's not just saying, because Jesus loves us, therefore we should love other people. I mean, that's true, and it's probably in there. But he's being more specific than that. Just just follow through verse 15 with me slowly. Verse 15. So the love of Christ controls us, verse 14. And then verse 15. He died for all, that's talking about Christians, that those who live, talking about Christians, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That is to say, if I'm a Christian, the old me is dead and buried, nailed to the cross with Jesus. And there's a new me, a new me, a new life that exists because of Jesus, that he's given me a new life that will go on into eternity. It's like a a terminal patient who's given an organ from a donor, which gives them a whole new life. It's like a soldier who was never going to come back from war, but for another soldier putting their life in the way, rescuing them, saving them, carrying them home, and then they didn't make it. His death has given me a new life. We live because of his love, because of what he sacrificed. And so our aim, verse 15, should be to not, no longer live for ourselves, but for him for whom our sake, for, for, for him, who for our sake died and was raised. Striking this, because uh, uh, I, wonder, I wonder to what extent that is our, our view of our existence that we now live for Jesus. So easy, isn't it, to, to, to think what slice of the pie chart should Jesus get? Kind of as I'm working out my life, uh, like how much spare time, money, energy should I give to Jesus once I've covered the basics of study, work, hobbies, family, fun? It's not that at all. My entire life, the whole pie chart, belongs to him. How do I serve him in all those other areas? That's the second motivation, controlled by a love of Christ. And I've been struck recently, that's not just a question for kind of full-time church workers. I sometimes talk about this with people applying to the, the ministry associate program. Like, are you sure you know what you're signing up for? Both for the next two years, but also potentially longer term. But in a sense, every Christian has already signed up to this. Live for Christ. Okay, number three. Motivation number three. Viewing people from God's perspective. Viewing people from God's perspective. This is verse 16, and we've already begun to touch on it. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, one of the things about Jesus and his people is that we don't look particularly exciting. We're just not that impressive or exciting. Like, like we've seen, we, we, we're jars of clay. It's easy to overlook quite what a big thing is actually going on here with us. 
Paul used to think about Jesus like that. That's what he's saying about this and viewing Jesus according to the flesh. He used to just not think much of Jesus. He was a fake, a false messiah, a charlatan. He claimed great things, but he was really a danger to, to truth about God. But then he met him risen from the dead and realized something big was happening here. And so now he's got a new perspective. New perspective on Jesus, new perspective on people. Christians may look unassuming and unimpressive. Christians aren't really identifiable in a crowd, unless it's summer and the socks and sandals combo is on show. But while the outside may not stand out, what is going on inside is absolutely extraordinary. Look at that language, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, passed away, behold, the new has come. That language of new creation is, is like the Isaiah language of the world being fixed, the new heavens and the new earth. That, that picture of God fixing a broken world. It's what we so long for, isn't it, on Remembrance Day, that one day God would remake this creation, fill it with peace and his knowledge. It's a grim reality that in this world, humans can't live on the planet without tearing each other apart in war. Grim. And yet one day Jesus is going to put it right. He's going, to, he's going to bring peace. And what Paul's saying here is that end time peace has broken into our hearts. New creation has happened. One by one, person by person, heart by heart. This kind of world fixing, people reconciling power has already started in us. That's why Robin so often says when you come to a local church, you're getting a foretaste of the age to come. We actually are. I know it's messy. I know we don't always manage it very well. But God is reconciling us, people from different backgrounds, reconciled to God and so reconciled to each other through Jesus. It's an amazing thing. So it's a different perspective on Christians and, of course, it's a different perspective on others. Because others are not yet reconciled with their maker. At the school gate, you can um, kind of size up different kinds of parents. There's the kind of sporty parents in their gym wear, looking like they've just had an amazing run. Um, there's the kind of social parents who are always shouting out, oh, yeah, see you on Friday again for that other thing. And the rest is like, oh, I'm never involved in that. Or whatever it is. Uh, there's the slightly geeky parents who come with boxes and boxes of books, um, poor children. Uh, there's, there's kind of different groups. But actually, from God's perspective, there are two groups. There's the people who are not yet right with him. And there's new creation. It's one of the reasons if you're in a workplace or a school or a university, it's so good to meet another Christian and pray with them. Or if you've got another Christian on your street or in your neighborhood, meet with them and pray for the neighborhood, for the office. It's great that CEUs do this so much at student age. I don't know why we stop. It doesn't get any easier after student age. It gets harder. Why not encourage each other, fellow new creations, with God's perspective on people? That's the third motivation. And then finally, and Paul is aware of what God is doing in the gospel. These are these amazing verses from verse 18. And they're just wonderful, aren't they? All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Just to say, commentators debate about whether Paul here is just talking about apostles, like they're the ambassadors, or whether he's talking about all Christians. I think in this case, the apostles are like the original spokesmen, but we're the ones actually around spreading the message now. We're the ones passing it on. If you like, uh, Chalmers is the embassy now in this local place, the outpost of the heavenly kingdom. So all Christians, I think, share in this ambassador work. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? God has sent his ambassadors into coffee shops and workplaces and sports teams and families and schools and universities and streets all over this city. Us. New creation by his spirit with new lives living for Jesus. And right now, verse 19, there is an opportunity to be reconciled with God. An opportunity for free forgiveness. That extraordinary, not counting their trespasses against them. As chapter 6, verse 2 puts it, the final verse of our passage, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul is driven because he is carrying in his heart and in his mouth the most extraordinary offer. The core of that message, the content of it is verse 21. And with this, um, we're drawing to a close. Verse 21. Here's the gospel summary. It's it's pulling together um, Isaiah, the servant songs, um, Isaiah 53 particularly, where Jesus, for our sake, was made sin. Him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We've been thinking about this in Hebrews, haven't we? Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the one who never gave in to temptation, never spoke a lie, never cruel, proud, self-serving, always put others first. That Jesus, who knew no sin, took my sin and yours on his shoulders so that we might know his righteousness, might stand before God on that final day utterly free of fear of judgment. That is, our massive, overdrawn, moral overdraft was transferred to him and his righteous credit to us. It's just extraordinary. I know many of us have heard it before, but it is extraordinary that God would offer us that at his expense. That Jesus, in his great love, would go to the cross so that I don't have to. It's extraordinary. And so Paul, fearing God and that final day, compelled by Christ's love, viewing people with God's perspective, and aware that now is the time, now, until Jesus returns, now is the time when this offer is on, seeks to persuade people. Now what that looks like in different groups around Chalmers, what that looks like in our different relationships will vary. It's right to be loving, careful, gentle, thoughtful as we relate to folk around us. But this should be our aim. 
Paul, what are you doing with your life? I'm seeking to see people saved for eternity. Paul, what should we do with this building? Seek to save people for eternity. The message is that good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we don't find this at all easy. This would be one of the areas where we really often feel like jars of clay. Feel weak. We lack courage. We can easily lose heart. And so we thank you so much for these motivations. Thank you for this help to remember what reality is actually like. The judgment day is coming. That now is the day of salvation. And that Christ in his great love has opened the doors of free forgiveness. Please help us, like Paul, by your spirit, to be ambassadors for Christ, wherever you've put us. We pray that even this week, you might give us some opportunities to speak of him and give us courage to take them. In Jesus' name, amen.